Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Hey, Sherry, you know our kids? Yeah. Yes. The kids are, uh, I think, in an alcoholic relationship. They are both the primary concern, the most important thing, and also an afterthought, especially when it comes to communication. And I, I, I don't think this is just us. I think we see this a lot, where the well-being and the safety and the nurturing of the kids is the primary focus, certainly for the spouse, for the one that's not doing the drinking, there's definitely a gender component here. There is just a nurturing gene in women that is different than the genes that are in men. Um, so that care and concern and love for the kids is the top priority. And also communication is in some ways an afterthought. Like I'm dealing with the stress of this situation on an adult level, whether I'm the drinker and it's chaotic and I feel like my marriage is a mess or I'm the loved one and it's chaotic and I feel like my marriage is a mess and I've just got to kind of protect and shield the kids and actually talking to them about it, communicating kind of comes across as an afterthought. Is that how you felt about it when we were in it, when we were in the throes of my addiction? I think in the beginning, yes. I mean, because they were young and I really didn't know what to say and then, you know, obviously the... The oldest one was older when you were more, when you were drinking, causing a lot more problems in the relationship. Yeah, mid-teens. Yeah. But even earlier than that, like whenever there would be a fight and an argument and that discomfort or snappy words um, and grinning and bearing it, and she could pick up on it. And I always thought that our second youngest didn't, but I think he did. He just didn't express. I felt like I needed to speak with them. So I'm talking like. Middle school, fifth grade, but try to make it like it's not your fault. Dad has a problem with but drinking. But did you talk to them or did you just like sense what they were and were not picking up? But, I but said, did you actually talk to them? Yeah, much? I had shared with them like when dad drinks, it's just not a good thing most of the time. Yeah. And, you know, it makes me upset and it changes him. So we had conversations like that. Do you get the part when I when I say I feel like... You know, you're so entrenched in dealing with me and dealing with our stuff that while I think it's great that you did communicate with them, is are you more in a mode of protect them from it or are you actually in a mode of let's have let's sit down and have a good conversation? Well, protection was first and foremost. Yeah. Like the pretending and stuff, but and, and they could I, see through it. So then there had to be some, some kind communication, of communication, yeah. Yeah. I on the other hand was in oblivious mode. Like Oh, we argue late at night when they're asleep. They're not involved. They don't know what's going on. I I had, you know, I want to fall right on the sword and say I had no idea how much of an impact this was having. I certainly do now. I get it. But at the time, no clue. And so I think that that kind of balancing that you were doing between protecting and communicating where necessary, I think that's super typical, especially of the mom. That That's that nurturing role. You know, at, at the heart of all relationship issues is communication. And I'm not just talking about situations with alcohol and alcoholism. But, uh, you know, when people are having trouble, struggling in a marriage, struggling with to get along with family, it's communication in one form or another. But certainly when you look specifically about alcoholic relationships, the... The alcoholics ourselves, the the me side of it, we drink because we can't find a soothing outlet for or management of our underlying issues. And in a lot of ways, that's communication. I mean, I'm a huge fan of therapy now, right, Sherry? But, but back before, when I was still drinking, and my whole life before that, I just thought therapy was cuckoo. I thought it was, you know... Why would you go and talk about your problems? What good is that going to do you? Well, now I see it does all the good. 
I mean, keeping it stuffed inside is where the problems lie and where the, it festers and metastasizes and does awful things to you. Well, and you didn't so much mind talking about your feelings and issues. You just had I a problem with... I would never talk with, about it with a therapist. Well, that's what I was going to finish my sentence by saying. <laughs> it was your, you wouldn't have shared it with anybody else. You thought I should be your therapist. I should be the sounding board. I should be the one that has all of your thoughts and feelings and, um, you know, my ears were the only ones that should hear them. Also totally not uncommon. Yeah. We hear that a lot. Especially for us guys, for whatever reason, just societal influences, genetics, nurture nature, both. Um, we're just not in tune with the idea of sharing our problems with a stranger. So that's, we don't know it. I don't, I didn't know it. We don't know it, but that's one of the reasons we get married. I didn't get married to you so that I could dump all my shit on you, but certainly you became the only safe place for me to dump my shit. And so you had a lot of shit dumping going on. Thanks. You're welcome. So, but so, you know, as, so that that's a form of communication, certainly, but it's that underlying issue. And all of us who become addicted to alcohol have underlying issues. Now, they can be super traumatic and obvious, right, to other people, outsiders, like child abuse or sexual assault or, you know, witnessing the death of a sibling. You know, there's there's stuff that falls into this category and you go, oh, that's it. Unprocessed trauma. That's why this person drinks. But then there are people like me that didn't have any of that as a child. But we ha we still have our underlying issues. You know, for me, I was I was really I was quite driven as a child to get good grades and to succeed. And then at some point, that drivenness transferred from an outside. You know, my parents driving me to me driving me, and I got overwhelmed with this need for success. And my underlying issues are tied up in that quite a bit. And the idea of, you know, processing that, even to you, was beyond my ability to conceptualize. I mean, I used to run around saying dumbass things like, work hard, play hard, and you'll get all the sleep you need when you're dead. And um, I had this, you know, they, there's, they've got a name for it now. I don't know if you know that, Sherry, but this, um, of course, I say they've got a name for it, and then I can't think of it. Oh, hustle culture. This, mm -hmm. this idea that I'm going to work harder than you. I'm going to work longer than you. I'm going to make more money than you. Hustle culture. And that certainly is something that became entrenched in my psyche. And I wanted to succeed in, in those material, you know, popular ways. And the more I struggled, the harder I was on myself and the more I drank. So those were my underlying issues. And I didn't, I didn't really talk about that. I would talk about the solution. The solution is... We're going to get rid of some more employees and I'm just going to do the work myself because it will cut those costs, things like that. But I didn't say, God, this is killing me. This is really hard. I feel like a failure. I never said those things to you. Yeah. So lack of communication as it relates to my underlying causes caused me to just continue to drink and drink and drink and drink some more. Now, the loved ones, the you side of the equation... You've got your communication issues as well in an alcoholic relationship. Certainly there's there's frustration. You're dealing with those traumatic instances. When I really go too far, you're dealing with the chaotic instances that are more kind of ever-present. You're dealing with a dysregulated nervous system because you never know what to expect. In many cases, the spouse of an alcoholic is dealing with lying and hiding now, as we've shared in the past, I, I lied and hid how much I drank, but I never lied or hid that I drank. And it's not because I'm a saint or better than anybody else. I just never thought I could get away with it. So I couldn't imagine telling you I hadn't had anything to drink when I had. I I just knew that you knew how to smell it on me. And I didn't, I didn't understand how much you could tell my mannerisms changed right. when I drank, but I knew... I just knew that you'd be able to tell. So Well, also I think for you, you you so much wanted me to believe that drinking was a part normal part 
that if you were to lie about it, then and I caught you in it, I, I think that maybe you would then think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not supposed to be doing this. Like you weren't as, you weren't as ashamed about it. I think in a lot of ways. Yeah, not until I declared myself an alcoholic. That was very shameful. Yes. But the idea of drink, you're right. I mean, I was raised in a culture where drinking was the norm. Yeah. So the idea of drinking earlier in the day, for instance, or, um, yeah, I mean, anything I did drinking-wise, I had seen elsewhere, whether it was in my family or in my young adulthood. You know, hell, I was in a fraternity in college. I mean, there was no time when drinking was inappropriate. Right. So... Yeah, I normalized a lot of it, so I didn't feel the need to hide. That's a good. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. But I lied about how much I drank. I lied yeah. about you know you would I would sneak some drinks here and there, some shots, and be like, "Oh, I'm just drinking beer." And I'm like, "You in my mind, I would be, you're too messed up for just drinking a yeah. few beers." Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there was lying. You know, even though the lying is different in from case to case, but so lying, you know. Just generally poor communication. All the the problems that my drinking was causing you that you didn't have an outlet for. You didn't come to me and say, Matt, I'm really frustrated and I want to talk about it. Matt, I want to process this trauma. Matt, my nervous system is dysregulated and I need to communicate about it. So you weren't communicating either. Fair enough? I, I yeah, I suppose. I mean, and if I did, it, if I ever did share, then it was shot down and... um. You know, I was told, like, when I asked you about going to therapy, um, you know, you were very dismissive about it, and you can just talk to me about your problems, that sort of stuff. Sure. And I'm like, how can I talk to you about my problems, because you're my problem, (laughs) you know, and you didn't want to hear about the drinking. Yeah, I'm not going to be a receptive audience at all, Sherry, to your problems, and I don't want you to talk to them about, talk about them to anybody else, but how's that working out for you? Yeah, so... I wonder why I was able to, like, learn to stuff it down so much. Well, and another... So, so inherent in an alcoholic relationship, especially if you haven't started therapy, is poor communication on the part of the alcoholic, on the part of the spouse. But there's also another factor when we talk about communication. I think just societally, I think it's getting much better. And I think it's getting much better rapidly, just like in the last couple, two, three years. But traditionally... Communication is largely equated with weakness, especially for men. Because, you know, honesty is vulnerability, and we aren't taught to be vulnerable. So, you know, when we talk with, when guys talk with our friends, we talk about the football game, and we talk about, you know, a promotion that we got at work, and we talk about what we're doing for summer vacation and maybe we share our grilling <clears throat> secrets and what our favorite IPA is. I mean, there's there's nothing there. There's nothing of substance there. Because substance is honesty and honesty is vulnerability. And that is seen as a weakness in our society. No doubt about it. And so... So... Um, so that's another you know, problem when we say that all, and I believe this, all relationship problems are grounded in communication in one way or another, or they are enhanced. Anyway, the problems are enhanced by, by lack of communication. Um, just this societal equation that says honesty equals vulnerability equals you're a wimp. So, so that's, uh, that's something that we all have to deal with. Um, every relationship, Sherry, suffers when communication breaks, breaks down, and that includes relationships with the kids. So I wanted to spend a little time highlighting the importance of communication, where you and I have suffered uh, with bad communication, <coughs> kind of societals, the societal influence on communication. But now, <clears throat> let's shift the conversation to our kids and dealing with kids in general which is the main topic of this episode. Um, You know, when we talked a little bit about what it was like when I was drinking, 
we were mostly trying to hide the chaos from the kids and shield them from it. You did have some some honest conversations with them. But besides the honest conversations with them, the big communication that they received, besides overhearing us argue when I thought they were asleep, was, you know, they would pick up on moods, right? They would They would read the room. They would take the temperature of the room. And often, if you and I were arguing... Your for very good reason. Don't misinterpret this as me putting any blame on you, but your mood would sour, and you'd be in a bad place, and they could pick up on that. Is that a fair way to describe that? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, and this is going to be a hard podcast to to talk about because um, I still feel so terrible about that. Um. You know, I don't I don't have any sort of regret or feel bad about anything that involved any adult that I drug into our situation. Whether I like unleashed or I have bad feelings about a situation like between, you know, the adults in our family, but with the kids I just feel really terrible still. So I've been over here like trying to stifle my crying. Um, yeah, I feel, I feel absolutely terrible. I wish I could, like, go back and do it over and, like, really put on a mask. Um, I, I, I mean, I know that really there was nothing I could have done that would have prevented you from going down the path that you did with drinking. Maybe it could have, you know, I could have stifled some of the arguments by not engaging with you. Um, but yeah, I feel... Like, I missed a lot of opportunity to maybe alleviate some of that anxiety that our oldest one has now. And and I could say things like, you know, none of this is your fault. It doesn't matter what you do. You know, like, yes, you, Matt, would get worked up if plans changed. Because, you know, you needed to have this control and this, like this is how the night's going to go. And if she was, you know, with a friend and they went out somewhere and we're talking like, and they changed plans and we're talking like, you know, with, with parents, with parents that we knew, like when she was in fifth and sixth grade or whatever, you know, never pushing boundaries. And, and if like some plan changed, you like, it just threw you for a loop. So, you know, I wish I could, go back and say none of that none of what you did was going to change his reaction and his drinking and I feel bad that she missed out on a lot of opportunities because I think she was really afraid to like screw up and feel like she was to blame so I wish that I could go back and maybe she wouldn't be as anxious as she is today and be worried about her actions and how they affect others um you know, and for which, which is for the record, that is textbook child of an alcoholic right. behavior. Yeah, and she's we didn't even have to get past the introduction of you know anything that we read about how and, and this you know, impacts and I, kids. And I had a, I had, I mean, I don't have that sort of worry, and I really, I don't know how I got over it. Um, but I remember when I was a kid because I grew up with an alcoholic situation. And I remember, like, feeling like I could be the perfect child and I could do all the good things and that would make my mom feel better. And sometimes it did. Now, the the bonus there was my father wasn't in the house. They were divorced, but he's they still had to co-parent. So I still had to deal with that. It just made it a little easier, I think, because once the spoke had cleared and I had, you know, played my role of being the good, supportive, loving little girl to my mom that could kind of soothe her a little bit and she didn't have to be sleeping in bed with my dad like where you and I did I had to sleep next to the person that I thought was my enemy and I think that they really grew up feeling that lack of connectedness between you and I so I think it made them also like come to me first and because they wanted me to, like, break the news to you or 
soothe the situation or kind of introduce it. You know, we've talked about like planting seeds, you know, for them to go and do things or for them to try the sport or whatever it was. Because, you know, if it wasn't soccer, they were kind of worried. <laughs> I think, you know, um, so I wish I could go back. And that, okay, so I witnessed some of that, but that never shook me. That never set off any red flags. And the reason is, this is a very traditional patriarchal thing to say, I suppose. But in my family growing up, (laughs) we always went to my mom. Like if I was sick in the middle of the night, I went to my mom's side of the bed, not my dad's side of the bed. I mean, my dad would have handled it fine, but she was the nurturer. And so with any kind of, I don't know, controversial topics... She was my go-to. So when I saw my kids behaving the same way, I thought that was a natural gender role kind of thing. It didn't... And, you know, now I can see that at least to some degree, it was 100% impacted by they never knew what reaction they would get out of me. That was one of the things that I had written down in my notes. You know, your mood was what spurred this... You know, this is what the topic that we were talking about as you started sharing that your mood could sour and it would impact the kids but my mood swings would impact the kids they never knew what they were going to get sometimes I'd be into an idea sometimes I would think it was the worst idea ever sometimes I would want to table it and talk about it later sometimes I'd be angry so do you think that's one of the reasons that they always went to you because they never knew what they were going to get Probably. I mean, I remember there were just even a couple of, you know, clear memories, like Sunday night dinner. Like, you came to dinner, and you were joking and fine and having fun, and these were when the kids were, like, three and, you know, six and eight and ten. Um, and it was a nice meal, and they were you were getting them all riled up, and I used to say at least one Sunday night dinner, family dinner, that was... You know, no fart jokes, no poop jokes, that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, No burping either. And no burping. You know, one mannerly dinner, which, you know, I took a big risk, but I just feel like for me, Sundays were the time that I had a family dinner. And and then you got mad because the three-year-old and the six-year-old are all goofy and worked up. And then, you know, it just ended in a terrible dinner where everybody just ate in silence. And I'm sure we all had indigestion. So I'd get them worked up, and then they and would then, cross some line that only I could see. Yeah. And then I'd and then I'd be tamping it down, but not in a kind way necessarily. Yeah, it'd yeah. be like a flip of a switch, I mean, and then you would just living through that. I don't ever. I mean, I remember it. I don't remember that being bad, but I can I can look at it like I'm a third person now. I can look at it like I'm watching the scene unfold and be like, oh yeah, Sherry is a hundred percent right. I would do that, and. I don't, I would never do that now, but I totally, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I want to comment on a couple of the things you said, like when our oldest would be out with friends or even with friends and their parents and the plans would change and that would, you know, throw me for a loop and I'd get upset with her on the phone, which is actually what happened the very last night I ever drank, um, that was, you know, kind of my rock bottom was yelling at my daughter because they wanted to go to dinner after a movie that they had seen. It was like, it was a Sunday night, I think. Yeah. And they wanted to go to dinner after a movie. And I thought it was too late because it was school night. But again, they were with moms that were in the group. It wasn't, uh, it was, it was not an appropriate thing for me to get worked up about, but I did anyway. And the comment I want to make is I remember that when you would tell me to calm down or that I was being unreasonable or that she's she's fine, she's a kid, she's a good kid, she's not doing anything wrong, I would look at that through the lens of I knew that when I met you in college, you were a wild child. And so I would think, oh, I don't want our oldest daughter to turn into the wild child that I met. You know, Sherry was partying and smoking weed and, you know... I. I put all of that on you. So when your parenting, you know, instinct would be, she's fine, let her be a kid, I would say, oh, I didn't never say this out loud, but I would say in my head, oh, and, you know, have her become a wild 
young 20-something? No way. And so the last thing I'm trying to do here is justify my actions. I'm just trying to explain that my terrible parenting and terrible treatment of my daughter, you know, I didn't hit her or anything. It wasn't like that, but I would, no, you know, you you said it was going to be this and it's got to be this and you can't change plans like this. Like that kind of act, you know, behavior and communication you factored in, but not in the way you thought. It wasn't me just ignoring you telling me to calm down and stop being an ass. It was me saying to myself, well, I don't want her to turn out like that. I have a great deal of guilt and regret about that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever, I don't, I'm pretty sure I've never shared that with you. You haven't. Is that hurtful? Yeah, so that, that makes me feel like all those times that you would say you're such a good parent, that that, that was a lie. It kind of makes me feel like. You really just said it for lip service to gain favor. And, and you know, like... And that you didn't see that I kept that kind of craziness in my 20s in college. And then when I immediately started to change, when we, like, left the college years and partying behind us, it was very evident. Because it was, it was before we had... Children that I started to change and to, and morph into my adult his adulthood, and that you were just so blind to that that that's what you still thought of me. And I'll tell you the reason I remember that night specifically. The reason I did not go with the other moms and the girls to see this movie was because you were drinking early, and I needed to be home to protect the boys. Yeah. And make sure that they got ready for bed and had their showers and had dinner. I would have loved to have gone out. Sure. With her and her girlfriends and their moms. Because they had a tight little group and it was fun. But I was always on the outside of that. Because I couldn't fully engage. Because I didn't know of your behavior. And I, and I, the same thing with the boys and their parents' friends. There's a lot of exclusion where I am the outsider in that group. Because I didn't know your behavior, what it was going to turn into, or how much, even if you were involved, how much you would drink and act like an asshole. Well, there's another part. I would get really jealous when you would go out. Yeah. So, not jealous like you were going to sleep with a dude, but, I don't know, jealous that you were having fun. Jealous that you were drinking with friends. I, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I would expect you to check in and um and if you were later than you had said I'd be an asshole about it so when it comes to being friends with our kids with the mom's group of our kids friends um yeah you were definitely limited by my attitude and and the way I treated you yeah so then I think that that makes our kids feel a little bit like they're on the outside of their friend group a little bit because the parents aren't in- engaging the way the other parents are engaging. Because some of, I mean, like, some of these kids we've known since preschool. Yeah. And so we've known their parents that long. And I remember that was a comment once. Was we don't want to go and do anything with those parents, and I was didn't, and I had to say, well, I don't want to take your dad. I don't want to be out that late. I don't want to deal with it. Yeah, because we did. I mean, it's not like we were ostracized. In fact, some of those parents are still people that I would consider good friends. We bumped into a couple of them last weekend and had a big, big bro hug with one of the dads who I I still am very. You know, yeah. I don't see him very often. I don't talk to him very often. We're not best buds, but very fond of each other. Yeah. And so even through all of that, but you're right, there was some isolation and and we weren't on the inner circle. And it was because of my drinking, for sure. That is a uh, casualty of my drinking. You know, it'd be easy to look at it and say, oh, because they, 
most of them still drink. There's actually another sober person in that group, another sober dad in that group specifically. But for the most part, they all still drink and, and honestly, some drink pretty heavily. And so it's always been easy for me to say, oh, we don't drink anymore. That's why we're not in the inner circle of that group. But I'm actually just sitting here right now and realizing you're right. Um, there were lots of times when I was a drinker where we weren't part of it. And for the reasons that you're saying, you didn't want to have to deal with how much I would drink and, you know, the potential for chaos and trauma for sure. I want to, I want to go back to one thing and I'm not, I'm not trying to make an excuse. I know I'm in a pretty bad light on this and that's fine. I don't mind that. And I'm not trying to dig my way out of it, but the two things could definitely 100% exist. And I don't know if that I can explain it, but I always thought you were a wonderful mother. I mean, just a wonderful mother. I, I thought you were the best mother that there was. I still think that. And I'm just being honest. And I could feel that way and still not want our daughter to have those wild early 20s and think that and thought that my judgment was better to help her prevent that even while I was drinking and I know that sounds ridiculous mm-hmm. well that's but I'm just warp- being honest I there was never a time where I was like I think Sherry's a shitty mom and I'm gonna tell her I think she's a good mom and then I'm gonna take over and make all the decisions like that never that never entered my mind I thought the only thing I thought sometimes you gave the kids a lot of choices and that would cause you problems because they wouldn't, you know, kind of react toward you the way they did toward me and toe the line. And, you know, but I don't want my kids to toe the line because they're afraid of me. And that's in, you know, ultimately that was the reason that they did. So you were always a better parent than me and you always will be. That's never going to change. Well, you're a really good dad now yeah. because you're a really good listener and you're really open. Well, you can't. But that's what the alcohol did to your brain. You can't 15 years of a person's life and then be a really good dad. Okay. You can be a better dad than you used to be, but I'm never going to wear that label much what? as I'd like to. So let's, wow, thank you for your honesty um, on the little throne as it relates to my notes and the direction I thought we were going, but that's okay. Cause this was really important. I think, um, so in sobriety, I remember, especially with the older two, I remember explaining what addiction was and, you know, I'd learned about brain chemistry. So I explained that it wasn't just a moral failing, but that something was happening in my head. I remember it's, I remember with our oldest son being in the car explaining it to him and I remember him nodding and you know I kind of I thought boy what a great job I've done I've I've you know convinced my son and and not in a negative way I've rightly convinced my son that addiction is a disease and that I had an illness and I was recovering from an illness and that here's how it worked neurologically and and he you know, accepted my explanation and we were going to move on. But now I look back and I just wonder, I've thought about this a lot lately, you know, did, did they really, especially again, the older two, did they really accept my explanation and say, wow, um, thanks dad for explaining an illness we didn't know anything about? Or were they just kind of keeping quiet and nodding their heads because, it kind of like how my dad, my dad, my dad in my early sobriety said to the rest of the family, like my mom and my sister and her family. And you know what, whatever Matt writes, whatever Matt says, as long as he stays sober, we just got to let it roll off like water on a duck's back. Don't rock the boat because he's staying sober. And so I kind of wonder if that's the kid's you know, my dad didn't talk to my kids, so I don't think he put that in their head. But I wonder if naturally they came to, you know, whatever, dad, you were drunk. You don't seem to be drinking right now. You can believe whatever you want about brain chemistry. I don't really give a crap. 
All I know is you're not drinking right now, and that's better than when you are drinking. And I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And I wonder if that is kind of what was going on in their heads. No. Yeah. I hadn't really thought of that. I just, I for so long, when I was drinking and in early sobriety, I thought that my word was kind of gold with them. Especially, you know, when they're younger. You get to the point in late teens where it becomes clear that your word is meaningless to your kids. And whatever you say, they're going to do the opposite. I mean, that has nothing to do with alcohol. That has to do with growing up and leaving the nest. That's natural. But I thought for a long time that they kind of, you know, hung on my every word. Sounds so awful. Um, even when I was explaining addiction and now I just think they were probably like, whatever, whatever, you're not drinking. That's better than when you are. So I don't give a shit what you think. Hmm. I wouldn't blame them if that's how they felt. You know, I'd caused problems and I wasn't causing problems anymore. So i got to keep my mouth shut and get through it. And I say this because, and I, I, I have these thoughts now because I've learned to give them way more credit for how intelligent and intuitive they were at that time. I now give them more credit than I did when we were going through those experiences. I thought I had more influence over them than I did. Does that, does any of that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think we, you know, we, we see that a lot. We, we meet a lot of people who, are hesitant to talk to their kids or don't know how to talk to their kids or are searching for the right words and in the meantime they don't say anything. And, I mean, maybe those people are just way smarter than me and they realize these kids are picking up on a lot and they've already developed and formed their opinions and what I have to say maybe won't matter that much. But I have no regrets about what I explained to the kids because I think lack of communication is way worse than, you know, muddled, at least attempted communication. I think talking to them is so important. So let's transition to that. The kind of formal first thing that we did with the kids, I was a year sober, right? When we had our little family meeting. Yeah, something like that. A little over a year sober, I think. And we sat them down and we, I'm sure I went over the explanation for addiction again because I had to, I don't know, be in control or be the leader, or be whatever I thought my role was. And so I'm sure I had some preamble that they had to sit through. And then we turned it over to them and said, you know, you th- this is a safe space. You can say anything you want. Tell us honestly how my alcohol consumption impacted you. And they did. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's been a long time since we've talked about it. Our oldest, she let me have it. She had a lot of anger and frustration and resentment, much as is the case with the spouse of an alcoholic has built up anger and resentment and frustration. And she let a lot of it out. And our second oldest, our oldest son, he just kind of sat and, if I remember correctly, kind of held her hand and tried to comfort her while she was letting loose. He had very little, if anything, to say. Our youngest was kind of confused by the whole process. He had, I'm not saying I did, my drinking didn't impact him. I'm not trying to get off the hook in that way. He just doesn't have the, like, memories. He has some of the behaviors, yeah. but he doesn't have, like, actual memories. And he also has hearing loss. So when he would take his hearing aids out, he didn't hear as well as like our third son, our third child, our middle son, who has excellent hearing and heard everything. And our third child, our middle son, he had some things to say, um, probably second was... most to our oldest, but he was less angry. He was, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I remember the venom coming off of our oldest um, more so than anything else. And I remember her oldest brother just comforting her. Those are the two kind of scenes from that that I most remember. Yeah, and I think it was, as you were telling the story, um, or setting the scene, 
I think it was further into your sobriety because we had then been revisiting the resentments between you and I and we kind of had came to this point where I was like, but there's so much about the kids that you keep denying. That yeah. was affecting me. Because I thought we had you shielded them we had so shielded well. them. They didn't know what was going on. And they didn't have any of the effects of being children in an alcoholic family. So I remember, like, you know, us having these conversations. I'm not going to feel better until the kids get a chance. Yeah. Yeah, so just to further set the scene, you're 100% right. This was a meeting, a family meeting that I kind of led, you know. Like Tarzan sticking his chest out. Let me tell you about, you know, what we've all been through and set the scene. And and I'm just, I can't believe that I acted that way now looking back. But it was definitely a meeting that would not have taken place had you not insisted that it was important. So even then, even a couple years into my sobriety, even as I'm leading this family meeting, I really didn't think it was important. And it had a huge impact on me. Again, especially the way my daughter reacted had a huge impact on me. And and it was eye-opening for me. Like, oh, wow. I expected them to say, yeah, Dad, that sucked when you drank. But we're glad you're sober now. Thanks for that. You're the best. (laughs) And that's not what happened. (coughs) Yeah. That's not what happened. And so, yeah. That family meeting was a turning point. It was messy. It, I don't know that it necessarily went particularly well. It it, it ended without necessarily resolution. You know, progress, but not resolution. But I don't know that, you know, even, even as our family continues to deal with the aftermath of alcoholism and recover from it, I, I think the situation for all six of us is dramatically better than it would have been had we not had that first conversation. We've had further conversations with our daughter where she has felt comfortable letting loose and really telling me what she thinks. Not about alcohol, about other things. About the many other mistakes I've made. And I had a therapist tell me when I was really worried about that, I had a therapist tell me that, no, that's great. That she feels safe to yell at you is really, really great. That's healthy. And that was a great deal of relief to me to hear that because I, I was afraid I was losing her. So let's talk about some of my other mistakes in parenting. Um, I don't know if this fully falls into the category of mistake, but so we have this family meeting and now we're all about communication with the kids and we're going to share everything we can. And we decided, I decided. And I was opposed. You were not opposed. I was, you were if opposed? you're going to talk about the, the movie... The porn documentary? Oh, well, both of them, I should say. Pretty much I was opposed to most of your ideas because I felt they were a little overt and a little excessive in some ways. What movie? <coughs> the one with Steve Carell. Oh, yeah. On the you're side. Right. Yeah. Did but, the exact same thing twice. <sighs> yeah, so we, we, I guess I should change that to I, made our family watch a documentary about pornography. Um, that I thought was really important while we're in the, you know, the the changed mindset and changed attitude of communication is key, which I still believe. Um, and maybe had we not had all that family trauma, then the pornography documentary would have gone better. But basically my fear was, you know, when I grew up, if you got a hold of a Playboy once in a while, that was a huge, you know, find when you were a kid, when you were a teenager. But now, you know, every teenager carries around a supercomputer and they're not every, but a mid to late teenage years kid mostly carries around a supercomputer in their pocket that has access to free anything you want to see. I mean, not just sex, but, you know, really, you know, kinky stuff. And so um, I thought it was something that needed to be addressed. And I still think it was something that needed to be addressed. Well, because you were... We were really concerned about all the other addictions because as you were explaining brain chemistry, we're like, you know, there are other addictions that a person can have that whether it's gaming or gambling or food or so you were worried because we also, you know, 
like you said, live in a society where pornography is just at your fingertips. And our oldest had a really negative reaction to watching that documentary. And I think at the time I didn't understand, but looking back now, I'm I'm 100% sure she just was not in a place to take advice from me. And so the idea that I was going to sit down again and say, you know, thou art my children, allow me to impart this wisdom upon you. I found this perfect way to communicate about pornography and you will sit here for an hour and absorb this knowledge I think she felt insulted because I think she felt like she already knew a lot of what what the uh, documentary covered and I just didn't feel like I was anyone she wanted to learn anything from at that point and so the other example you cited was it's a beautiful Beautiful Boy. Beautiful Boy. Not It's a Beautiful. Just Beautiful Boy is the name of the movie. Steve Carell. It's really, really, really good. Um, The actor who plays Steve Carell's son, his name is escaping me, but he's gone on to be like a big time star and it's about his... Somebody. His um, opioid and meth addiction. It's based on a book that's a true story. It's really great. Extremely hard to watch. The kid's name in the movie, the character's name is Nick, and our oldest son's name is Nick. And so I remember after I made the... Was Catherine here for that? Or was that just the boys? I think it was just the boys. After I made the boys watch that movie with Sherry and I, I know our Nick was offended thinking that I made him watch it because... The lead character with all the addiction problems have the same name as our son and and almost like, you need to watch this because this is you. This is how your life's going to play out. So that was just a coincidence that the character's name is the same as our son's name. Yeah. There was no intentionality there, but maybe some bad parenting because I didn't think that through. But we were very much, you know, we went through a phase where we were kind of in your face about communication. I don't know that I even necessarily regret that. I think those were important things for the kids to see. I just think I thought I had all the answers because I had done all the screwing up and I had done all the learning from the screwing up and now I thought I had all the answers and I assumed that because they were my children they would be receptive to learning from me and I think that was a mistake. But I feel like you were trying to fix and open up the conversations and even though at the time they were really uncomfortable, um, I mean, the kids did share about how they felt about that stuff. Um, you know, they didn't hide their feelings and their thoughts about watching the Lisa Ling pornography thing. And um, they didn't, you know, I don't think they're necessarily scarred by it. I think that it, in hindsight, I think a lot of the they'd think now is dad's trying to open up the form of communication and I think that in a lot of ways it's worked because I feel like our two oldest are very open about things like with conversations like our oldest boy he plays played some high school bands and there were some scenes where he played and they were parties and he, I would be like, oh, I wish I could go to that. And he's like, well, you can come. I mean, there's going to be kids that are going to be vaping and smoking pot and drinking, but I'm not going to, but you can come and see me and my band. We're not going to be doing that. Like, So he's feels comfortable enough to say, that's not who I am. And you can't, you know, that's these other kids making these choices. So I feel like he probably wouldn't have been so receptive if we weren't open and more communicative. Yeah, you know, I don't have any regrets about having the family meeting. Not at all. That was super important. I don't have any regrets about showing them and making them watch the pornography documentary. I don't have any regrets about making them watch Beautiful Boy. My regret comes... My regret is centered around, I wish I had been as humble then as I am now about it. Because I just think I had this attitude that I have this knowledge... You are my children. I will share this knowledge with you. And I didn't respect them enough as smart little humans Mm -hmm. that could process things. I just, I would approach it differently. Well, and I think you were in a real rush because during these sort of conversations in this time, we're talking about 
was like right before COVID. Our daughter is going to be going off to college soon in this, you know, in the next year. So you felt this rush to like impart all of this wisdom and instead of being a like open about what do you know about it? Can we talk about it? Can you tell me your thoughts and feelings on it? You rushed in with a lot of examples and well, and then I further made that worse right before she did leave for college that summer before she left. I remember having this panic attack basically that I had all of this other knowledge that I had yet to impart on her and I had to squeeze it all into that summer. And so it was like a summer lecture series for that <laughs> poor thing to go through. And I, we're talking about politics and economics and, you know, uh, personal home economics because you're going to go and be an adult now and house maintenance and <laughs> just everything I could think of was going to get unloaded on her. And it that was a really bad experience. That I regret, you know, wholeheartedly. I, Again, from the same therapist friend who uh, taught me that her unloading on me was actually a good sign, not a bad sign. I also picked up the wisdom that, you know, my job as a parent, especially to an older teenager, young 20s, when they're kind of pushing away and rejecting your knowledge is to stay a safe place <coughs> so that when they have questions, they'll turn to you. Don't, don't try to be... Don't try to force it all on them. Make them aware that you've got it, and if they want it, they can come get it and make it make them feel safe about that. And so I screwed that up pretty badly. God, it's amazing I have a good relationship with her at all. And, you know, this has all kind of come to the forefront recently with our daughter, who's a junior in college. So she's been on her own for a while now. and But still, hey, you're in college, you still need your parents or need some advice once in a while. And there have been two instances. One, I regret how I handled it. Um, she had, without getting into the details, she had procrastinated on an issue. And when she called to talk about it, my initial reaction was negative as it relates to her procrastination. And I told her, you know, you're an adult now, you can't behave this way. And did a little lecturing of a 20-year-old. And that just not ever going to go well. And I, re I regret that. I, I wish I had found a different way to impart that message. Ultimately, she still needed help and I still was able to help her. But I think that, I think that hurt her. Yeah. I think that hurt her. And by the way, procrastination is one of the signs of an adult child of an alcoholic. Is it? I yes. guess I didn't know that one. That's I, that's why. I procrastinated a lot too until I didn't, and now I'm whatever the opposite of that is. Like, <laughs> like a painfully non, like yes, like needs needs clinical therapy about being the opposite of a procrastinator. It's bad. Like I you pay the bills way. as the mailman is delivering. Like them. yeah, like, run out to the street. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, like heading stuff off before it makes any sense to do so. It's it's bad. But anyway, um. So I handled that one poorly, and then she called a month or so later with another, you know, young adult situation that's going to happen. And I really surprised her with how, with, with I didn't, you know, before helping her start off with a lecture. You know, I said, oh, you know, that, boy, that sucks, and that's, that's not surprising, you know, for the place, you know, I didn't say that, but... But hey, this is some of the stuff you got to go through. And gosh, I, it sucks for you. How can I help you? And I think I shocked her because I think she was braced for a lecture. And so I felt really good about that one. And then, you know, yesterday we were texting about <laughs> she's registered to vote in two different states, which is legal to be registered to vote. You just can't vote in both states. In Colorado, you get automatically registered. So she didn't take any... When You it, you can sign up when you get your driver's license if you're over 18. Well, there, there's automatic registration here. I don't even know if she needed to check a box. But anyway, regardless, she's registered both where she goes to college and here in Colorado. And as we're texting back and forth about where which state she's going to vote in, I just couldn't help myself, Sherry. I'm such an ass. 
I said, it's a federal you, offense to you vote know, in both states. You know, you if know you that. Vote in both states, it's a felony. <laughs> I know, because I'm on the text chain and I was like, God, dick, dick, dick. I know. I also just I, I was like, why'd you say that? She knows. She's like super smart. <laughs> She's way smarter than me. Why did I say that? God. Yeah. But so now I'm sure. I'm sure I'm back on the you know the shit list <laughs> to some degree. Um, but I, I guess the point is. The overall point of all of this, you know, we started off with talking about how communication is the, and lack of communication and bad communication is the source of so many of the problems that we all deal with relationship-wise. And then we started talking specifically about kids, and I think the goal has to be, you know, I we've talked to our kids a lot about addiction. I don't have any kind of misconception that none of our four kids will ever drink. I there's no part of me that thinks that's going to happen. There's not even a part of me that thinks that would be healthy necessarily for none of our four kids, no matter what their situations or where they go in life for them to, to ever drink. I know that at least some of them will. And I'm, and, th- and that's cool. But I think our job is to present them with the knowledge that we didn't have to unnormalize alcohol because I grew up and you grew up with it being, and not necessarily you and your family, but in society, we saw it as such a normal part of existence and work relationships and and neighborly relationships and just everything. And so well, I think that it's just amplified over the last 15 years, 20 years. I mean, I grew up and we did neighborhood things and campfire things. Like there was a huge amount of people that had these like campers. I remember being a little kid, and I didn't remember hardly seeing any beers. Maybe a couple beers out of these group of, like, 50, 60 adults. Yeah. You know, and we were running around the campgrounds, and, you know, there was just... It just wasn't a normal part of life. Well, now you can't even go to a PTA meeting without needing to go get a drink afterwards. Yeah. Or meeting at the restaurant slash bar. Yeah. So, it's... And I think it's just... So, we try to, like, steer our kids in the direction of... There is a level that a lot of people, because we don't want to, like, be mean to our family members that do drink. Yeah, we don't want to villainize them. Yeah, and that's, we've been really careful about that. But also, there's a lot of places where it's just not even needed, and you don't need to have it, you know? Yeah, I I think our biggest um, goal And, and responsibility is to present an alternative option. Because, for me, alcohol was a foregone conclusion. You do this. This is part of being an adult. This is a sign of success. If you don't do this, then you're a wimp. Yeah, because your so, family really embraced it for its glory. My family, my family's friends, my friends, my teenage friends, my 20s friends. Like, there was no... And you've pointed out before on the podcast that, like, I had coworkers who didn't drink, and I just you didn't, have didn't, any, yeah. didn't know they existed. I, I blew them off so fast when I found out they didn't drink. Mm-hmm. I thought they were geeky nerds and yeah. just struck them from the list of options. The stigma of not being a drinker. Yeah, exactly. So showing our kids that not being a drinker is a viable option is super important. And keeping those lines... And, you know, again, if I had if I could go through their teenage years again, my n- number one priority, besides being sober for their teenage years, would be... Everything I would say would be to keep the lines of communication open. Mm -hmm. Don't lecture when a lecture isn't needed. Don't come across as the know-it-all when that's not going to be received well. Read the the room. And know your kids well enough to know what's age appropriate, what's going to hit, and what's going to push away. And obviously, since I texted about (laughs) the felony of voting in two states yesterday, I still don't do it all the time or know what the hell I'm doing. But I'm trying. Yeah. Hey, thanks for being so honest and real about um, how what the kids went through has impacted you. I know it's not easy um, to get dragged into these conversations and it doesn't surprise me. I don't think it's a sign of unresolved trauma necessarily or unresolved resentment that you react so emotionally when we talk about the kids. I just think it's a sign of love and your nurturing nature and it's proof that you're the best mom out there. So, 
Um, I think this kid's conversation was overdue and important. And, and I, I know um, we have a lot of folks that listen to the podcast with kids that will really resonate and relate. So I love you and I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.